Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode, an extended holiday special, features a conversation with scientist-turned-filmmaker and writer Randy Olson. It was recorded in November 2022. Randy, who got his PhD at Harvard, left a tenured professorship of marine biology to attend film school before spending 25 years making movies. His output in this field includes documentary features about attacks on science and a comedy about global warming that Variety called an exceedingly clever vehicle for making science engaging for a general audience. By 2008, Randy noted that the anti-science sentiment in society was getting pretty serious, and so started writing books, kicking off with Don't Be Such a Scientist, which discussed the problem of poor communication of science. Around this time, institutions started asking Randy to run workshops focused on the solution to this communication problem, which Randy believes resides in the power of narrative structure. He's since gone on to write many more books, including Houston, We Have a Narrative, which brought Randy to my attention and, well, literally changed the way I think about communication entirely. He's done TED Talks, won all kinds of awards, and has trained thousands of scientists, students, and government staff in the power of narrative. Randy is a fountain of knowledge and has an infectious energy. He's also a long-time surfer, which, as you'll hear, was evident at the start of our call. Our conversation taps into one of the tools from Randy's latest book, The Narrative Gym, looking at how we can close the gap between a hypothetical world where the last 50 years of communicating climate change had gone perfectly, and the world we live in where, in Randy's opinion, it didn't. Whether you're a scientist, a journalist, a marketer, whatever, there is plenty to chew on. So, let's get on with it. Hold on to your holiday hats, everybody. This is Communicating Climate Change with Randy Olson. Randy is connecting to audio. Randy Olson, are you with me? Hey, I'm here. Aha, there he is. Aha. Good that we're not recording video for this. I just came back from surfing. <laughs> so we're recording this on uh, November the 1st, 2022. And that means that last week, your 10th book about communication, The Narrative Gym, came out. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, but this is a podcast about communicating climate change more effectively. And that makes this book extremely relevant. And there's one tool in the book that seems particularly important since it's intended to help with exactly this kind of thing. Um, you call it the MAT template, M-A-T-T. -T, and I want to use this to structure at least the beginning of the chat that we're having today. So to get us started, maybe you could explain a bit about what the MAT template is, what it's good for, and how we can use it. The MAT template is a derivation of the central narrative template that we've built a decade's worth of work around which is the ABT, which stands for and button, therefore. And this is knowledge I've discovered inside of Hollywood in my journey that began 30 years ago and came across screenwriters who have this fundamental understanding of the tripartite nature of story structure, but really of, of narrative structure in general. There are three main forces to narrative, which are agreement, contradiction, and consequence. And the words that best embody those three words are and, but, and therefore, and it turns out to be a really powerful tool for everybody, especially scientists, to boil down their entire research agenda into something like, in my lab, we've been studying physiology and biochemistry 
but we've come to realize the important questions are at the molecular level. Therefore, we're now doing the following work. It fits into everybody's research program. And that's what we do now for the past two and a half years intensely with the ABT framework course. We use this ABT tool to work with all these groups. I was just last month in Nepal for a week working with the World Bank, their um, global leadership team for sustainability and working with medical schools in Georgia with the NOAA, the FA, the National Park Service, on and on and all these different organizations. It's such a powerful tool. And that's the series of books that we've done. This is the fifth one we've come out with now called The Narrative Gym. And the core of that philosophy is that you've got to work with this tool day in and day out if you want to get better at communication. There are no one afternoon workshops you can do that are going to make any significant impact on your ability to communicate. But long-term effort with the same mindset you take to physical fitness, taking that to narrative fitness, working day in and day out on this. But the big development we had at the beginning of this year is uh, Matt David, who's worked with me for two and a half years, is a screenwriter from Hollywood. And he hit this realization that, wait a second, this template of and button therefore is great, but you know what? There's a broader version of it, a more simpler version, a more emotional version, which is the three elements of heaven, hell, and action. And that has come to be known as the Matt template we presented in depth formally in this new book. And that's what we could take a shot at right now talking about climate is heaven, hell, and action, meaning before you get to the hell of all the things you think have gone wrong, why, why don't you give us a little sample of heaven? How, how do you think things ought to go? How would things have gone in a perfect world? Last January, when he first mentioned it to me, I said, oh, that's kind of cute. And now week after week, month after month, we're using it with all these groups and they're reporting back, oh my God, the Matt template, that's it. Because it's about starting with heaven. It's about starting with a picture of, of where we ought to be, of what a perfect world would look like, because that is where your source of hope exists. Before you start beating the hell out of people about, look at how you polluted our planet, you've got to begin by giving them that hope. And this is the misguided element of the entire environmental movement that I've witnessed my whole life, is this age-old pattern that you can see it brought to life in Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, which is beat the hell out of the audience first and then at the end give them a little bit of hope you know but but we could still save it sorry by then everybody's given up you didn't light any fire inside of them you just went at them beating them down for what they did wrong and then somehow you think at the end you can salvage it by saying but there's hope because we saw this one place where they reversed this and that doesn't work that way the way it works is expectation followed by observation so expectation is the expectation of how we hope the world would be and if you light a fire inside of people up front, if you can spend some time telling them about, look at how good things could be, then you can begin to give them the bad news, which is now let's take a look at the, the observed. And by the way, for anyone who's a scientist, has any science training, what, what I've come to realize is that this is the same thing as, as what you do in statistics. It's two main things. It's expected versus observed. Any chi-square test you do, t-test, whatever, that's your fundamental elements. What was your expected and what was your observed? Now we're going to test to see if there's a difference between the two of them. And it turns out that's what communication is. That's just these two fundamental elements. We begin with a picture of what we expect the world to be. Then we drop the bomb on with the observed. Every basic elementary murder mystery you ever saw begins with this happy world that we expect the world to be a quiet little town, everybody enjoying themselves. And then the observed, but then there's a dead body. It's that same fundamental dynamic and that's the progression that you need to go through if you really want to 
to get people listening to all the problems. And you save the actions for the third part. You know, when they've still got that hope burning, you've beaten them down with where we jumped the track, but they're still sitting there. Well, tell us how we can get to that thing you told us at the beginning. And that's what you finish with is these are the things that we think can be worked on. So we wanted to try out the map template comprised of heaven, hell, and action. And that meant starting with heaven. So climate communication in a perfect world. How would that story have unfolded? What I'm going to do is give you a, a timeline for the past 50 years of this topic of climate communication in what I believe it would look like in a perfect world had things unfolded ideally. Again, my perspective from my journey. We're going to hit five milestones along the way as I tell this story of how things would have unfolded. And it begins in 1975 with a short paper, three-page paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the title of that paper was written by a postdoctoral fellow at the Salk Institute. And the title of the paper was Medical Obfuscation, Structure, and Function. And it was elegantly written. And what it was about was by 1975, communication of not just medicine, but science in general had begun to suffer in a big way from this key word of obfuscation, which means the tendency to explain something that's relatively straightforward in a manner that's so upside down, convoluted, and difficult to follow that it becomes inefficient. And what the paper was warning is that we're getting so much obfuscation now in the literature and in communication in general, in both medicine and science, that we're going to hit a point where you can't make any sense out of this stuff anymore. And at that point, why are we even doing the research if you, you can't use it down the line? It was such a beautiful paper. And in the discussion, the author pointed out that 100 years ago, scientists communicated so much better than today that we've actually gone backwards. In a world of too much information, we're getting worse at communication day by day rather than better. One of the final quotes from my paper said, only in the 20th century has obfuscation become a routine mode of communication. In a perfect world, that paper would have set off shockwaves throughout the science and medical world. Uh, people would have begun circulating, talking about it, intense discussions. What are we going to do? We're communicating so poorly that our whole profession is going to go off the rails. And all these groups would have come together. And more importantly, the foundations would have stepped in, like the Ford Foundation with enormous resources. And they would have said, we're going to address this problem by creating a whole new program, a whole new institute and they would have created something called the IFOS, the Institute for Obfuscation Studies. And I'm not joking here. It is that big of a problem that was that clearly identified in 75 that it should have catalyzed a crystallization and focus on how important it is. And this IFOS, Institute for Obfuscation Studies, would have had multiple branches to it. Um, beginning with information studies, of course. And by 1975, the late 70s, information was beginning to crank up in our society. And this information branch of the whole institute would be inspired, at least, by Marshall McLuhan, the great media visionary of the 1960s. He was one of the first people to sit up and start pointing out, look at what's happening here. We're turning into a media-driven society. He died in 1980, but shortly before his death, he coined a term that has been sadly lost to history, but it's a term that's so relevant to today's world, uh, which is the information maelstrom. And the word maelstrom, you would know about being in Norway, was from the Edgar Allan Poe poem, Descent into the Maelstrom, the idea of this mythical vortex out there in the fjords that sucks in everything that gets close to it, and all the fishing boats get sucked into the maelstrom and blown to pieces. And what Marshall McLuhan was suggesting was that we're starting to crank up the amount of information in our society, and along with it, 
comes misinformation. And if we don't watch out, someday we'll get to the point where the amount of misinformation equals the amount of information. And at that point, we will be in the information maelstrom and it'll be hard to make sense of anything. You know, you just won't know which side is the truth, um, which kind of <laughs> rings pretty strong for today's world. So that would have inspired the information branch. And then another branch would have been mass communication. And for that, they would have brought in experts from the two communities in our society that best understand how to communicate with the masses. And that would be business and entertainment. And in fact, they would have taken all this money and built a great big building that would not have been in, inside Washington, D.C. It would have been somewhere around the country, maybe in Colorado, good central location. And this building would have had multiple wings and there would be a whole wing for these mass communication people from business and entertainment. Um, and furthermore, there would be security at the front of the wing when you go out there. And the instructions of the security people would be to not allow anybody with a PhD to come out onto that wing because we know that PhDs don't understand mass communication. They make a mess of it when they get involved with it too much. The next wing over is where we really do want the PhDs, which is evolution science. And evolution science is the science of change and not, not just evolutionary biology, but evolution science in general. And those experts would have helped to explain what's going on as this society begins to change with this information stuff. By the late 70s, they would have been headed up by Stephen Jay Gould, the great evolutionist, who was really the greatest communicator of evolution since Charles Darwin. And Gould's essays from Natural History Magazine are so insightful. And many of them explain these patterns that you can see of cultural change in our society using these evolutionary concepts, things like selection, but also adaptive radiation and all sorts of other phenomena like that. Evolution is the science that really ought to be guiding the political process in our society. It's, it's such a tragedy that those uh, different disciplines can't cross over, but the cultural divides are so great that doesn't happen. But that wouldn't have happened with this Institute for Obfuscation Studies. It would have been a place where all these disciplines crossed over with each other. And furthermore, there would be this focus for the entire philosophy of the Institute, which is to focus not on the public understanding of science, which, you know, by around that time was really getting formalized into, we need to get the public to understand how science works. But instead, there would have been a realization that the day is coming when it needs to be the other way around, the scientific understanding of the public and how the public perceives these things, how the mind of the public works. And another tidbit, there would have been this formal understanding of a numeric intuition that characterizes the science world versus narrative intuition that characterizes the um, the general public. We'll get into that later. So that's our first milestone, 75, the creation of this IFOS, Institute for Obfuscation Studies. Now we jump to the second milestone, which is 1988, when James Hansen, the climate scientist, testified to Congress in a really historical moment, the summer of 88, and it was boiling hot in Washington, D.C., and he was pouring with sweat as he began to explain this problem of global warming was emerging. In a perfect world, he would have given that talk to Congress and there would have been a delegation there from IFOS, Institute for Obfuscation Studies, and they would have pulled him aside after his presentation and said, that was such an important bunch of information you've just presented to the nation. Um, you're a terrible communicator, and yet your information is so important. We want you to team up with us, and we've got the people that can help communicate what you're saying there effectively to the masses. Now we jump to six years later, 1994, for our third milestone. And in 1994, the guy who wrote that 
seminal paper in 75 that, again, in a perfect world, would have set off a whole revolution for communication. That guy, by 1994, had left the biomedical research world, left his postdoc at the Salk Institute, and become pretty much the most successful person ever to work in Hollywood at that point. In 1994, he had the simultaneous number one book, movie, and TV show. So his movie was Jurassic Park. His name was Dr. Michael Crichton, who had left the biomedical world because he was such a gifted communicator. And he had the number one movie with Jurassic Park, the number one TV show with ER, drawing on his medical background. And number one book was Disclosure that year. He'd gotten to the point where all of his novels debuted number one in the New York Times bestseller list because he was such a gifted communicator to the masses. And that's what was really novel with him. So by 94, he had emerged as this powerhouse of communication with a science background. And in a perfect world, the Institute for Obfuscation Studies would have finally sat down with him and said, look, we were inspired by your paper in 75. How's about if you guide us you know, overall? And he would have said, yes, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, because by then he'd had 20 years of writing essays and giving talks to the science world, offering up his knowledge and services. Anyhow, <laughs> we won't go into what happened with all that. Then we jump to our fourth milestone, which is 1998. There was a paper published by three top-notch climate scientists, Michael Mann, Raymond Bradley, and Malcolm Hughes, that came to be known as the hockey stick model, where they presented this graph that did a you know great job. They grabbed that little metaphor of a hockey stick and it was showing the correspondence between elevated CO2 levels and elevated temperature for the planet and warning that this is what's happening now is we're changing the climate. Same thing would have happened there. After that paper came out, the three of them would have ended up talking with the Institute for Obfuscation Studies and the people at IFOS would have said, this paper of yours is so important. All three of you are lousy communicators, but the knowledge that you're presenting here is so broadly important that we want to team up with you and help communicate this really effectively to the masses so that we can continue to create this non-political, apolitical mass movement behind the issue of, of climate. And by the way, the, the guiding light of Michael Crichton, all of his work was was apolitical. You know, it was just he knew how to grab these science topics and make them understandable to the average sort of working class person. And one of the things that were said about his novels was the thing that were, they were so smart and yet you didn't have to be so smart to read and enjoy them. So that's why he was such a gigantic resource. And the fifth and final milestone here in our little timeline of the perfect world is that in 2005, that summer, when a producer in Hollywood named Lori David, who was married to the comedian Larry David at the time, uh, that summer when she began running around talking to everybody in a panic, saying that global warming is here because there were four, maybe even five major hurricanes that hit the US capped off by Katrina. And I ended up at two different events where I heard her say this, that it's here, global warming's here. We're now going to have these hurricanes every year and it's time to accept this and we've got to get the message out immediately. Well, in a perfect world, as she began saying that, people from the Institute for Obfuscation Studies would have sat down with her and said, we appreciate your concern, um, but we've got Michael Crichton on our team and with him, he's brought Steven Spielberg and he's also brought super agent Michael Ovitz, who was his agent throughout the 1990s and Crichton died in 2008. Michael Ovitz in his autobiography wrote an entire chapter about Michael Crichton and how brilliant he was. And the last sentence of that chapter, he said, I miss Michael Crichton every fucking day. And the F-bomb was there for a reason to underscore the enormity of what a resource Michael Crichton was 
And so the IFOS people would say this to Laurie David, which is that we appreciate your concern, but we're on the job here and we've got the very best people. And furthermore, again, these are largely apolitical voices that we've got working on this. And it's important that we keep this thing non-political, uh, not politicize it. And as a result, the movie An Inconvenient Truth never would have been produced because it wouldn't have been needed. There would have been this mass movement in this perfect world, everybody working together like a war effort, like what happened in World War II. Um, it probably couldn't be as unifying as that, but there could certainly have been something much more unified than the way things actually transpired. And the last little tidbit to say after those five um, milestones along the way in the timeline is that had that Institute for Obfuscation Studies been created, it would have been perfectly positioned at the beginning of 2020 when the pandemic began to emerge to communicate that effectively and in a non-political way and would have had the public's trust and would have known how to reach down to the, the average working class folks, again, with the business and entertainment resources and communicate the pandemic a whole lot better than the absolute unmitigated nightmare of the past two and a half years. The worst debacle in the history of the communication of science is what we've we've witnessed. But in a perfect world, there would have been that IFOS and it would to this very day be churning away, doing a whole lot better with communication than what we've seen. It's great. I, I love it. It's sort of like a like a fantasy football league mixed with a Kim Stanley Robinson novel. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Now that we'd heard Randy's idea of climate communication heaven, it was time to move on to the next part of the Mac template, climate communication hell, or as Randy sees it, the way things really turned out. There's so much that we could go through. I've just chosen, once again, five little milestones along the way. So we'll jump back again in our 50-year timeline. Milestone number one is the, the 25 years from 1975 to 2000, after Michael Crichton did publish that note in 1975 on medical obfuscation, pointing out that communication had gotten really bad. Uh, 25 years of him offering up his services, more or less. He didn't wasn't dying to help the science world, but he was there for them. He wrote articles and gave talks. And nobody took him up on it. And after 25 years of offering your help, you get a little fed up with people at that point. And so that's the first little milestone there is he was ignored largely. Uh, what happened is scientists are so literal minded, as you know, the second chapter of my first book, Don't Be Such Scientist, was titled Don't Be So Literal Minded. That's what happens. That's what I go through now is that literally an awful lot of scientists when it comes time for help with communication, the only thing they want to hear from is people that know their entire discipline, their field. You know, if they're a molecular biologist, they want somebody who knows molecular biology to advise them. And that that's content. You don't need any help with your content. You're already an expert on that. You need help with form. And that's what Michael Crichton could have helped them with is form to tell interesting stories, but again, ignored. Second milestone, in 2002, I did a visit to the University of Washington and ended up meeting with about a dozen professors and from their Sea Grant program in a conference room. And they turned to me with these earnest eyes and said, what are we going to do? We're now being told that we've got this new issue of global warming to start educating students on. And this stuff is based in biogeochemistry, the most difficult topic for us to teach in ecology. And I knew that from I taught introductory ecology at Harvard, Brown, USC, and University of New Hampshire. Um, I know that the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, phosphorus cycle, all that stuff is really, really hard to teach. And yet that's where this whole problem of climate was. This wasn't like save the whales or any of the sorts of ecological things that were much easier to get students connected with. 
So I wasn't aware of what was emerging by then. That was 2002. So, you know, three years after, four years after that hockey stick model was just getting started. And again, had there been an Institute for Obfuscation Studies, they would have been on the job by then and realizing that we've got a a train wreck coming. Uh, Third milestone, 2006, the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth. That's the point right there that the climate community drove the bus into the ditch. And I don't know that any of the climate communication people have ever done any sort of in-depth critique of that movie. To the contrary, they've worshipped it. Oh, my God, Al Gore's the guy that saved us. No, I'm sorry. Al Gore's a very nice guy, had really great intentions. He was off doing his thing as his own personal therapy for having lost the presidential election. It was Laurie David and Davis Guggenheim that really ought to be handed the blame for that, that whole mess. Because what they did was they cashed in in the short term. Yes, they grabbed everybody's attention overnight, but they did not manufacture any sort of a mass movement dynamic. And in fact, they instantly polarized everything. You can see it. Call up the transcript of the whole show as I did a few days ago and look at the first couple paragraphs and you'll see where it jumps the track immediately. And that's because Davis Guggenheim, the director, has zero narrative intuition, doesn't know how to tell a story to save his soul. And so that movie starts with one paragraph of ethereal stuff about in a meadow, everything's wonderful and beautiful. Then the second paragraph begins with, here's the blue planet we're looking at from outer space. And then the third thing is the butt word, the butt bomb. It says, but we're ruining the climate. So he shot his wide in the first minute of the movie. Could go. You can't go anywhere narratively once you go to the big butt. Once you drop the butt bomb, you're done. You've already taken us on the journey there. From the outset, where are you going to go from there? And the answer was, you're going to take a sledgehammer out and pound people over the head for an hour and a half, which is what happened there. And then the third sentence right after that is Al Gore says, I used to be the president. His bitter joke about what happened in 2000 with the presidential election, which granted is terrible, but it derails the whole narrative there. Suddenly, this is a cult to personality film about Al Gore and his life. What in the world were you people thinking with that movie in 2006? Several of my friends were in the audience at Sunset Gower Studios for the screen. They did three takes of the thing. And they told me about it. And they were like, what the, what the hell is this thing? What, what are they doing with it? And it was whipped together. There was zero time taken to develop the narrative structure that could have been there. And you want to know how that story should have been told? Here's how the first act should have gone three heroic stories in a perfect world exactly what we're talking about there were three perfect world stories that could have opened that movie to educate the, the masses about climate and those three stories were three climate disasters that were averted through the brilliance of the climate science community the first one was the la smog story in the mid-70s nobody even talks about it anymore 1974 i was with two college buddies driving down the riverside freeway in la with our eyes pouring with tears the smog was so thick you couldn't see more than two or three cars ahead of you it was an unmitigated disaster. Climate science came together with the environmental community and they fixed that problem back then. It is a story from the perfect world, the ability to fix these things. Number two, acid rain that was destroying everything in upstate New York and all around there. The Environmental Defense Fund led the charge in p- pulling together the best scientists and eco- economists. And they fixed that problem. They got rid of acid rain for the most part. And the third heroic story is the ozone hole, this worldwide problem where all the nations of the world came together for the Montreal Protocol. Three heroic stories that could have been told long before you brought Al Gore out there to bellyache about what happened to the presidential election. And it's it's just the absence of narrative intuition. That's the price to be paid. And the net result was a completely polarizing film that 
polls showed the most of the people that turned out for it were all Democrats. They were the converted. It was the worst nightmare, something I witnessed from way back when I was a graduate student. I used to, I began to notice what, what's with this preaching to the converted stuff that goes on with the environmental community. Why do they get together and just speak their same stuff to echo chamber stuff going way back to the 1970s and eighties, you know, not long before there was even an internet, they were doing that routinely. And the Al Gore movie ended up being the absolute nightmare, worst example ever of the echo chamber dynamic. Two more milestones on the hell jump to 2008. My buddy John Sturman had a great little note in science in which he did an experiment. He took the summary for policymakers from the IPCC report from the previous year, had 200 math and science graduate students at MIT read that, that two or three paragraph statement that's meant to be in plain common English so that policymakers can understand what this big fat report is about. And what he found was 84% of them got it wrong in trying to, in two or three senses, summarize what it was about. So if math and science graduate students at MIT couldn't make any sense out of the IPCC broad report uh, statement, how in the world could policymakers put it to use? And that was followed seven years later by um, Tollefson at Nature did the similar sort of thing. He used the Fleisch Ease of Reading Score Index and found that the SPMs, the summary for policymakers, had gone straight downhill since the early 90s. Again, tracking this thing that, that Crichton had pointed out long ago, we're getting worse at communication with time. And then last year, I had John Sturman on my podcast, and I said, you know, it's been all these years since your note in Science 2008. Has it gotten better? He said, no, it's worse than ever. It's going straight downhill. And that brings us to the last milestone, which is last November, COP26, where and, you know, this will be my final message. If there's any one voice I hear out there in this climate mess that maybe there's some hope for, it's this young woman, Greta, Greta Thunberg. And she quit the whole cop thing last uh, in Scotland in last November. And what she said to them was, it, it's all blah, blah, blah. Well, that is actually the same thing as and, 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 the opposite of ABT. And it means that it's all non-narrative. And she was absolutely right. She pinpointed right there. You people are gathered together here and you're working non-narratively. You're just listing things. We could do this, could do this, could do this, and, 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 and. You're not doing the ABT thing, which is setting up the context, identifying the singular problem and laying out the actions that need to be taken to address it. And she rightfully got fed up and, you know, and, and quit the whole thing. And now just I see in the news today or yesterday that um, she's going to boycott the next cop thing for the same thing, that they're wasting time. Uh, there's your one realistic in, in a perfect world source of hope. That's a small slice of the hell of what's happened. I think the the overall headline of that is that the bus got driven into the ditch with the Al Gore movie and it's still in the ditch and you don't pull the bus out of the ditch overnight. The solutions are large scale, long term, and it requires culture shift. And I don't see any evidence of a shift in culture. I, I just see stomping onward and onward with the same old people doing the same old things. So, we've heard Randy's climate change communication heaven, and his climate change communication hell. Now it's time to hear how we can go about traversing the ground that stands between them. This is the action phase. Five quick points. Number one, culture shift. It's time to let go of this thing on public understanding of science. There, Everybody should look at that 1985 report from the UK about the public understanding of science. That was appropriate in 1985. That was the beginning of the information explosion. We're in a different world now. Back That was back when people were desperate for information. Now everybody's super saturated. The game has reversed itself. And as a result, it's time now for the opposite of that SUP, scientific understanding of the public. 
And I just don't see enough efforts happening on that front. Number two, um, it's this thing we've really focused in on in, in our training with the ABT. It's the divide between numerical intuition versus narrative intuition. Scientists have numerical intuition. They can look at large sample size and they're trained in it from day one. You know, from the beginning of your training as a scientist, I know you're taught to worship the large sample size. N equals 10,000 is a dream come true. Um, the public is the exact opposite of that. They worship the N equals one, the anecdote. And look at any feature article in the New Yorker week after week after week. If it's a big article on immigration, it's going to begin with an anecdote of one person crossing the border to help you understand this issue over and over again. Look at this excellent film uh, series, Dope Sick, that just I just watched last week. What do they do there? There's your brilliant communication. They use the story of the one individual, the anecdote of Michael Keaton playing the doctor to help you connect with the numerical thing at the large scale of the investigators doing the investigation of OxyContin. That's how it works right there, using the specific to communicate the general and an understanding of that. I just don't see any discussions of that in this climate stuff. I, I don't get it. Number three, propagate narrative culture. That's what we're doing now through the ABT framework. It was laid out in the Houston book, that little figure at the end about you know, here's our ultimate goal is to begin to create these pockets of people that have all got these narrative tools. Number four, the business and entertainment community. I will say this to the end of time. They're the ones that understand this stuff. And it goes, I can go into lots of specifics about that. The academic science world doesn't understand it. Michael Crichton said it in that 99 speech. He said, scientists don't understand media. And by the way, the reason Marshall McLuhan was so important was because media is the cutting edge of human consciousness. Absolutely nobody on this planet totally understands media. It's very elusive. And the people who create media are the ones that are most likely to understand it. Take a look at Ronald Reagan, who was involved in the media world and making movies. Take a look at um, Zelensky right now, who's done a brilliant job communicating about Ukraine. Why? He was trained in the television world. And I hate to say it, but take a look at our last president who came out of reality TV. It's the people that have got that practical experience with media. They've at least got some grasp on how it works. And the fifth and final thing about action is what I mentioned earlier. Um, I don't know for sure. I'm, I don't have the time to really dig into it, but it seems to me that Greta Thunberg is the one voice I hear out there who is a good, sharp, critical mind that's looking at all the inefficiency and crap that's being done and this polarized, one-dimensional stuff and saying, this isn't working. You're, you're not accomplishing the things you need to. And I, you know, I hope somebody can give her eventually a copy of the Narrative Gym, this new book that we've got coming out, because I got a feeling if she read it, it would make so much sense to her about, oh, my goodness, that is how it works. Exactly. Um, it's ABT. It's understanding the context, which I guarantee you she's got a much better grasp now on context than she had five years ago. And that's why I think that she'll con continue to be an increasingly important spokesperson for climate, because she can put things in the big picture. And I think she understands where the things have jumped the track. And then the ability to know that you've got to find these singular problems that can be worked on. And then you got to lay out the the action agenda of what you're going to do about them. So that's, that's my recommendations. Well, that's the map template from Randy's latest book, The Narrative Gym. It's a tool that we can all use potentially whilst doing reps on our narrative intuition. And that's what it's all about, right? Yes, exactly. And that's what we're propagating now is this understanding that the only way to really become a good communicator is you've got to have narrative intuition and you can't just fill in the blanks of these things. You've got to understand it, have a feeling for it. 
that's a term I derive from what I learned in Hollywood, which is the great screenwriters talk about what they call story sense. And they've got an ability and you get in these story meetings and things like that. And you listen to them speak and you realize the really good ones. They don't have a bunch of rules that they're referring to. They've absorbed those principles so deeply that it just everything they say, it comes out that way. It's kind of like what we point out at the beginning of the new book. Uh, the front page of the New York Times, take a look at it. On any given day, you'll find at least one or two butt paragraphs. That's a story on the front page of the New York Times that begins with two or three paragraphs of just exposition, setting something up. And then they will start a paragraph literally with the word butt. This is my little hobby every day, being narrative nerd man. At my grocery store, I pick up the front page of the New York Times and scan it. And almost invariably, there's one or two or three or four stories that have got one butt paragraph. When I was learning how to write as a kid, they told us you can never even start a sentence with the word butt, much less a paragraph. But look at the front page of the New York Times. That's your ABT dynamic come to life by a bunch of editors who don't have any ABT rule, but they embody it on a daily basis. That's how they shape their stories because they're trying to reach the biggest, broadest audience. The climate world could learn a lot just by studying the front page of the New York Times. There's a lot to be said for big, broad audiences, but what about more targeted outreach? How does Randy think that we can better tell stories for specific groups or communities? Does the narrative gym have anything to add on this topic? One of the first figures we've got in there is this super simple diagram of knowing your audience, which is you want to understand your audience narratively. That's the only really broad, reliable dynamic that is very functional and helpful to you. Um, the usual thing, know your audience is more content oriented, which is, you know, if they're a bunch of golfers, then know that they play golf and know that if you drop a few lines about golf, that'll help them get fired up. That's nice, but that's trivial by comparison with narrative structure. What narrative structure is about is know your audience. Is is this audience your inner circle or your outer circle? If it's your inner circle, if your audience is five people in your laboratory, in your office, or if it's your family members, then you can communicate with them with and, and, and you don't need any of this ABT stuff. You know, you're, you're given a free pass. They already know the context. They know you so well. They know the consequences, why what you're telling them is, is really important. Um, but the tough question is, how big is that inner circle? And it turns out it's much smaller than you'd think for most people. I know because I lived that as a scientist. I thought everybody in the world was interested in my work on starfish larvae. It turned out I learned the hard way. Nobody was interested in that stuff. And we make fun of that in the first chapter. The, the lead author, Marlis Douglas, tells a great story about it. even my mother thought my research was boring. Um, you've got to soak that in and appreciate that. And that's what understanding who your audience is, is about. It, understand them in a functional way, not in a content-oriented way. And there just isn't anybody that's really talked in terms of, because these other folks haven't developed this knowledge of narrative structure, it's just not even part of any of this climate communication stuff. That's why I have virtually nothing to talk about with these people. You know, I look at their articles and like, well, this isn't the language I speak. I'm sorry. Good luck to you guys. Go have fun with your climate stuff. I'm hard at work trying to propagate narrative culture because I think that's what humanity's built around. I had one final question for Randy, and it's one that I like to ask all of my guests. What did he feel was the single most important thing that communicators should pay attention to in their work? Yeah, start studying narrative structure. That's it. There's your starting point right there is this book uh, Marlis and Keisha, my two co-authors, have done a great, great job with it. And we're just getting started, but we're we're going to get it in the hands of so many different uh, programs because this is what they need. And the ABT is taking off on its own. That's really great. You know, it's self-propagating. I get on a daily basis emails from people 
just saying I use the ABT for this presentation and landed far better than anything I've done before. So one of the cool things in the new book is that for the first time ever, we split it into the two levels, the primary and the secondary. So the primary level is just the three words and, but therefore, and that can get you a good long ways down the road to improving communications, but there are at least eight elements that are at the deeper level of how this ABT dynamic works. And it's once you get inside of the words and button, therefore, and realize what's going on, once you realize that the and is made up of two elements of the ordinary world and what's at stake, and then within what's at stake, there's the if-then principle inside of that. And then you look at the but, and the but is made up of two elements as well, the but and the because. And if you don't have the because in there, then you don't set up the, the actions that need to be made. There's an optimal form for how you put these pieces of information together to achieve really powerful narrative structure. Someday, somebody's got to use an inconvenient truth as just a, an example for these courses in narrative structure of how to do it wrong. Everything about that movie was ill-conceived because they did it in such a panic. And then because they had their butt bomb up front and because everybody was panicked, they turned out a big audience and then used that to congratulate themselves. But it's it's a textbook case of how not to do this stuff. And the answer to go back to what you asked is uh, this simple little book that it's only about 80, 90 pages. You, know, you can blow through it but you need to blow through it many, many times. It's not a one and done type of thing. It, one of the shocking things we learned last spring with one group was people retain probably 10% of what was in the course. They retain so little. This stuff takes repetition. It took me 10 to 15 to 20 years to understand the story stuff that they taught us in film school. They told us from day one, they said, story will out. This is going to determine whether or not you have a career as a any sort of writer, at least, is whether you can tell a good story. And I was so arrogant being Mr. Science Man. I just said, whatever, you know, I got this science stuff to relate and it's really cool. And then year after year, painfully, you know, with films that didn't quite work as well as I'd hoped for, I began to realize, wait a second, look at the narrative structure of this thing. It's a mess. And it's a long, long journey. A lot of my film school classmates now, we're 25 years since we graduated and we have conversations where we can't believe how many years it took us to slowly absorb this stuff. It's it's at the core of humanity, and it's not surprising it would take a long time to really grasp. This was one of those conversations that will stick with me for a really, really long time. Listening back to it during the edit only emphasised some of the tools that I'll be taking away with me or continuing to work with. The same thing happened when I read Randy's book, Houston We Have a Narrative. Understanding and beginning to use the ABT framework changed the way I work. It changed the way I think. It changed the way I consider messaging I see around me, things I read, watch, and are otherwise exposed to. It really shifted something in me. But this conversation gave me a lot of additional insight, from leading with that positive vision, something we've heard from other podcast guests too, but perhaps not in such a formalized way, to training my narrative intuition at every possible opportunity. These are the things that I'll continue to incorporate into my communications efforts. But how about you? What will you be taking with you into your work? Thanks to Randy Olson for sharing so much with the show. It was awesome. I hope you agree. You can find links to all kinds of resources and items that Randy mentioned in the show notes, including, not least, links to his new book, The Narrative Gym. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit, to help us develop the skills and inspiration that we'll need for this enormous, essential task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. I'll be taking a little break over the holidays, but I'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes. Until then, happy holidays, and take care. Mm-hmm.